Welcome, everybody. This is Tuesday Morning Grind, episode number 41. Today we have Mike Jones with us. Mike is a former member of the hacktivist group Anonymous, prior military intelligence, uh, world-renowned security researcher, penetration tester, um, and maybe most importantly right now, is the founder of the uh, hacking and security group Haunted Hacker, which is pretty cool. We'll talk a little bit about that. Mike, thanks for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure. Mike, very interesting background. Um, Obviously, everybody is going to be wondering about the anonymous thing, but maybe before we even hop into that, can you talk a little about your background? How did you get into security? How did you ultimately link up with anonymous and get to where you are today? Sure. So I started off when I was really young. Um, I had a desire to mess with electronics and, and really anything that required a battery and had circuitry or some sort of you know computation. Um, my dad uh, was stationed at the NSA when I was a kid. And we, of course, we had computers, Commodore 64 when I got a little bit older. Um, so I was always interested in taking things apart. Um, they would buy me electronic toys. I would take them apart, um, build new, new toys out of it. And as I grew older, I started getting more, more and more curious on how things worked um, and how things didn't work and taking them apart and breaking them. And uh, my mom's first um, laptop, I remember she brought it home and I was writing a virus on it and didn't pack it correctly, ended up destroying her hard drive. Um, so it was just one of the, it was a series of events that brought me to where I'm at. Um, I started hacking at a young age, got into the military, and the military kind of honed my skills. I got into uh, the Navy and was a uh, cryptologist uh, working in signal operations, uh, signal intelligence. And so that was, uh, it kind of gave me a Kind of gave me a better look into the world of electronics and, and you know what have you. Uh, became a ham radio operator, um, really focused on electronics. And then um, right after that, they opened up the Navy's new cyber warfare rate CTN, and I was one of the first ones to go before the board to become a CTN uh, and help them write some of the uh, operation manuals and training courses and stuff like that. I actually just talked to a, a CTN that just got out of the military. And it was interesting to hear him talk about, you know, his course and, and what he learned. Uh, and then when I got out, um, you know, it kind of got me into the mindset of, I, I wasn't really trusting the government um, so much because the intelligence that I saw working at the Joint Force Intelligence Command uh, was kind of shocking. Um, some of the stuff that, that you see on TV is not actually what occurs in theater or, you know, is completely accurate to, you know, the time. Um, so I lost a lot of faith and a lot of trust in the government um, and wanted to make a difference. Wanted to, you know, release people of oppression and uh, kind of create an equal playing field for, you know, everyday citizens that were being oppressed by the government. And we all know after 9-11, um, there was a lot of uh, security Restrictions put on people and, you know, you had the Patriot Act where you could snitch on your neighbors, stuff like that, uh, that I was completely against. And a lot of freedoms and civil liberties that were being cut away. Uh, so that naturally brought me into the anonymous fold. Um, and at that time, it was a really young group. Um, we got started and, you know, did things like Operation Wall Street, um, you know, the Wall Street, uh, the financial Attack was kind of interesting because I was actually working for Bank of America at the time. Um, so I did pen testing and I always had a, a day job during my time with Anonymous. So, you know, during the day I was working and doing intelligence or doing, you know, pen testing or, or network security. And 
you know, on my off time, I was taking that information and, and doing damage with it. So, you know, you go from this life of structure. Uh, sounds like father was in the NSA. You obviously with the military background. And then with all the controversy, and I'm going to talk about this in a little bit about mass surveillance and some of the some of the trends that we're seeing today in, in terms of governments. But that ultimately led you down the path of wanting to, you know, work outside the system, I guess it sounds like. Talk about that. How do you how does one become a member of such a group? Because, you know, from a security person's perspective, working on behalf of companies, one of the questions that comes up a lot is like, who are the hackers? How do you attribute them? What's the what are the cells, if you will, look like? How are they shaped? And that's kind of different between hacktivist groups, whether you're a nation state or if you're a criminal organization. So from the hacktivist perspective, how, how did y'all operate? Was it like on Discord servers or Signal or in person? W what did that look like functionally? It's a combination. So back then we didn't have Discord. We had yeah. IRC. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we existed on a lot of hidden IRC channels, um, you know, a lot of covert channels. Uh, some some of it took place face to face or, you know, through, you know, phone calls or whatever. Um, but it was always back channels. Um, and what what started out as a very small group ended up being a very large group um, and some groups and some splintered off and worked on their own. Uh, but mostly it was IRC driven. Yeah. Were you, there's so much when it comes to hacktivist groups, especially anonymous is like one of the best branded groups in terms of people know the guy Fox, you have the tattoo. It looks like on your hand. Uh, they, they have a YouTube channel. They have some marketing force. It seems like how from maybe it was different when you were there, but how how structured is it? Is there like a marketing arm? Is it just a, folk, a bunch of folks kind of throwing out ideas? What is the nature of it? So so the biggest misconception about Anonymous is that there's no organization. Um, you'll see people like Barrett Brown uh, was the voice of Anonymous. Um, we have, you know, th there was a Anonymous Twitter handle that was being used for non-ops and non-news um, to spread information. Uh, so what people thought was not organized was there's no central leadership. There's no, you know, organization to the operations is, is completely false. Um, and, you know, we've proven it time and time again, you know, you'll see different uh, battles between the groups or between leaders, um, you know, claiming responsibility for this, that, or the other. So, I mean, there's, there's definitely a, a list of leadership and, and organization within the group. Um, as far as marketing stuff like that goes, there's really no marketing. The, the brand itself took off pretty quick. And just like any group, you know, when I started Honda Hacker, we had 10 people and now we have over 600, I believe. Um, so, I mean, it, when an idea takes hold and it's, it's something that people need, something that people believe in, it tends to grow on its own, you know, and you don't really need that, that marketing. You don't need that, that branding. It just, it takes a life of its own. Are there elections? Is there a hierarchy? Um, is it just kind of someone takes the lead and people follow suit? What, is, what does that look like? It pretty much like when, when you look at, you know, the organization of organized crime and even some like, you know, I hate to say it, but even some cults, uh, the most charismatic people with the most knowledge yep. tend to be the ones who take charge. Um, and, you know, you can see that in pretty much any group, you know, whether it be a terrorist group or, or religious organization, you know, you still see that charismatic uh, leadership um, back to World War II and, and you saw um, Adolf Hitler, not necessarily the smartest man in the world, but he had a lot of charisma and he yeah. knew how to speak to people. And that's what, what got him to notoriety.
So ultimately, um, the FBI got involved, um, and and that led to you leaving the group. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how, how did they get involved? What was the relationship between you and FBI? That kind of thing. Sure. At the time, I was living in Dallas, and um, I had some contacts in Dallas, and I had just started a group called DC Nine Seven Two, which is a DEFCON group, um, and I had contacts like Barrett Brown in Dallas and. Soon after we started uh, DC-972, the FBI started popping up on the radar. Um, I'd also flown out to Vegas and did a documentary called Hackers Are People Too, and went on a 10-minute tirade about you know the laws regarding hacking and stuff like that, which probably didn't help keep me off the radar. Um, so they started popping up and asking questions, um, wanted to know who I was affiliated with, who I was talking to, if I knew this person, if I knew that person. Um, and just to put things in perspective, it was Agent Smith. Uh, Robert Smith was the agent who was conducting the... <laughs> the irony of Agent Smith of the Matrix. That's, that's perfect. Right. Um, so he basically was the one who um, helped convict uh, Barrett Brown, put Barrett, by, Barrett Brown behind bars. Um, and shortly after Barrett was arrested, that whole situation kind of dissolved itself. Um, but they kept kept tabs and they would pop up every once in a while. Like, you know, I'd be doing a demo for a company, a new company I'm working for. And next thing I know, the FBI would be there to view the demo. Um, same with some of the intelligence agencies I worked with uh, would have people show up at, at demos or, or at companies interested in the product. Uh, but it's more like keeping tabs. Um, and then when I moved to Houston, I started getting more vocal uh, and I started getting a lot more active. Um, and a lot more bolder, I guess. Uh, at one point, I had hijacked something like 50,000 surveillance cameras uh, worldwide. Oh. I was posting the images um, on Twitter. Uh, so it's kind of haphazard, but at the time, I just I wanted out of the group. I wanted away from what I was doing. I, I wanted to find a way to, to get away. And I guess part of me almost wanted to get caught, uh, to be honest with you, um, because it, I just really didn't see an end in sight. And I was approached by the FBI in 2016. Um, there had been some connection with an APT group over in Russia, and they were communicating some, um, I guess, targets. I, I can't go into too much detail, but some targets in the U.S. And the FBI knew I had that information. And they also knew that I had uh, quite a background. So my lawyer and I went to... Uh, the Wells Fargo building downtown Houston on the 23rd floor. And it was kind of, it's kind of scary actually, because my lawyer met me, we had done the channel two, the NBC um, interview about anonymous. Um, and they helped me get this lawyer, this lawyer, his name is David Adler and he's a former CIA agent. He actually helped a guy get out of prison after like 20 years for um, something he did while being part of the CIA, uh, you know, an operative for the CIA. But um, so he goes into the room with me. There's probably about 20 people in the room, uh, all in suits. Uh, there was a Russian uh, interpreter. There was FBI, Secret Service and the U.S. Attorney's Office. And they basically um, gave me an option and my lawyer helped me hash it out to where I was going to be a CI, a confidential informant um, for the FBI for a period of time um, to kind of make things even, I guess. Uh, so I met with them pretty routinely while collecting intelligence on a specific group 
Uh, I never did any uh, confidential informant work on domestic groups. So I, I never turned on anonymous. I never turned on any hacking uh, group in the U.S. Uh, but I was really highly focused on a foreign group that was in 2016. You can imagine it was the election and, and there were things going on behind the scenes. So they had me in a group and collecting information and intelligence. Uh, when we hit the portion of the investigation where we were ready to make a deal, um, the Department of Energy were involved, the DOD was involved, and the U.S. Attorney's Office was involved. And after that information came out, then the FBI kind of ghosted me. I mean, after that, it, it seemed like everything was done. Um, I talked to my lawyer. My lawyer said, you know, you've done a good job. Don't worry about it. You know, everything should be clear. And that takes me to when I went to uh, London and realized that the State Department had revoked my passport after I left the country. Wow. You know, one of the trends I hear is um, from you and others is there is this link between the government and three-letter agencies and everything that you think of when you think of hacking and, and things like that. So you have the NSA, who's uh, notorious for mass surveillance from the uh, Snowden revelations. You have uh, the law enforcement agencies like the FBI and the CIA. And then uh, it seems like every person I talked to that was a hacker uh, came from one of those agencies, was related to one of those agencies, or was disgruntled by information they know. I set all that up to say it seems like the people who know are concerned. Like, you know about the mass surveillance, you know about something. So what is it that you know that concerns you that you don't, that maybe isn't common knowledge? All of it. Um, the way that the hackers are targeted is, is one specific piece that I'm really concerned about. Uh, other countries, they look at hackers as potential, uh, I guess, people who can help. Um, the UK actually has a program where they take kids who have been identified as, as potential hackers and give them a second chance. But in the US, it seems like the fear of knowledge um, and the fear of hackers being able to do what the government can't um, drives their motivation. So, I mean, fear is a huge motivation when it comes to government. Um, and, you know, it's funny because me and Chris Roberts actually used to, to compare boarding passes and because we'd always get the four S's. You know, and it's supposed to be random, but it never was random. I, I could predict every time I went to the airport, I get the four S's um, and just weird little inconsistencies that popped up, you know, and, and people you would meet. Like I was in Cyprus and I was at a, a bar at the Holiday Inn in Nicosia and ended up meeting a guy that spoke perfect English, worked at the embassy and was asking me about hacking without even meeting me. You know, so it, it's little things like that that you know, kind of get your, your wheel spinning. But when you're aware of programs like Project Echelon, um, you look at Tempest, you look at some of the other programs that go on and the illegal wiretapping and surveillance and Operation Carnivore, um, you know, it just normal people don't hear about it. And if they do, it just kind of goes over their head um, because they don't have someone to break it down to them. So but let, I think let's talk about some of those because... Sure. I don't think that's common knowledge. So we don't have to pick any. Well, let's pick a couple of specific ones. What What are some of the projects that are going on behind the scenes that, you know, and I want to talk about personal privacy and some of that stuff, too. But I mean, when you kind of rattle off some of those 
programs that the government's working on, like Project Echelon, what are the types of things going on? And, and let, me, let me reframe it. So there is mass surveillance happening, both government level and also private sector, like the corporate, uh, like Facebook's stuff. And people are loosely aware that these things are happening. But the trap you often, or at least I fall into, is uh, the desire to downplay it. Like, oh, yeah, it's happening, but it's not happening to me, or it's not really happening on that, that uh, wide scale. What's your sense for, like, how pervasive is this? What's the amount of data gathering? How intrusive is it really? Well, I'll put things in perspective. So if it's happening to one person, it's happening to too many people. Um, because I think that everybody should be, you know, entitled to their privacy and their civil rights. Um, when you look at, okay, so take for, in, for instance, the CIA tool, Weeping Angel, in that operation. Um, they were using USB sticks uh, with code to plug into smart TVs and turn them basically into surveillance tabs where they could watch through the camera, listen through the microphone, um, different things like that. We did a, when I worked for Sapira Viper Labs, um, we came up with an exploit where we were able to turn the microphone on on Cisco office phones remotely, um, basically turning them into a wiretap. And the Secret Service was really interested in that demo. And the reason why is because, you know, the government really wants that, that internal knowledge, right? And they want to know everything. Um, and you see it in, in social media as well. When you have platforms like Facebook, um, who, you know, bans a conservative party, but allows the Taliban to have, you know, a profile for X amount of time. Um, and these social media platforms becoming politicized, you know, becoming polarized, you know, you know that they're collecting the data. You know, when you look at Google, uh, a lot of people think, oh, Gmail's free. You know, this is free. That's free. Facebook is free. But what people don't understand is they are the product. You know, the information they post, you know, things about their daily lives. Um, a lot of times when, let's say, the FBI is looking for a specific individual, first place they go is social media because people live their lives on social media. Um, and that blanket surveillance has been going on for years. I mean, even before um, Snowden, you know, it was prevalent. Uh, Snowden just made it very evident and, and published the papers. But this is nothing new. And, you know, especially when you look at, like, how the government is fearful of Russian attacks and Chinese attacks through cyber means. We've been doing the same thing since the beginning of time. Um, the U.S. government has their own cyber uh, operations that, that go on every day. Um, but they downplay a lot of it. You're right. They, they downplay a lot of it. They want you to look the other way. It's not a big deal. And I hear people saying, well, if I'm not doing anything illegal, then why should I care? But that's the whole mindset that brought us to where we are right now in 2021, where we have that mass surveillance, you know, where we have cameras on every corner. That's, you know, until we put up some kind of friction and some kind of pushback to the government, that's going to continue to happen. Uh, I want to talk about your research, but while, while we're here, are, are there things that you think you do differently because you're aware in terms of like, what is your security and privacy operating system? Do you use social media? Do you, uh, you know, cover up the cameras on your laptop? Do you avoid certain apps and devices and use others? Like what's, what's your operating principles? I, I do keep a level of OPSEC. Um, I, I try to cover the cameras when I'm not using them. Um, but I, what I tell people, and, and this is what I go by is if I'm doing something on the internet, or connected, I do it as if everybody's watching um, because 
more than likely there is somebody watching, uh, whether it be your ISP. Um, you know, the government has taps into all the ISPs uh, for warrant tapping. And also, you know, in case of emergency, they have to be able to get into the data. Uh, so having that knowledge just brings me to a different level of awareness. But I, I don't operate a whole lot differently, differently than I used to. I still use encryption. I still use Tails as, as an OS, you know, when I'm doing sensitive things. Um, I try not to post too much uh, anywhere on the Internet. And also, like, if I'm going to post photos, I always try to uh, make sure that the location services are turned off. Um, that way, the exit data doesn't contain the Latin long of where I'm at. I try to give as, as little detail as possible. Yep. So we talked a little bit about the stuff we know that the U.S. government's doing. Um, and, and obviously, you have a special insight into what activist groups are doing because you were a part of that, which brings me to like corporate security, because you have to assume if, you know, U.S. can do it and hacktivist groups that can do it, then, you know, other nation states and advanced persistent threats can do it. And I know that you do a little bit of research on APT groups or the advanced persistent threats. And that's interesting to me because to me, those are like difficult to stop. It's hard to stop a nation state from getting in if they want to, if you're a private citizen or a company. Who are the APT groups? Are there any in particular that are of interest that are responsible for a lot of the tax? Well, I mean, you look at APT 28, right, from Russia. Um, mm -hmm. Their structure is very militarized. Uh, you know, it, they claim that they're not part of the Russian government. But, you know, uh, focusing on that group for the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, um, you can see the structure. Uh, they also collaborate a lot with APT1, which is China. Um, you know, and the, the way that those are structured is, you know, they have intelligence officers that, that lead those groups. And, but they, they're a lot like the U.S. in the fact that they go and try to cultivate people with talent. Um, but it's not like here where you work for a paycheck. There you work for your freedom. Um, and a lot of them are, have access to a lot of uh, advanced knowledge, right? So when the former Soviet Union fell apart and disbanded, a lot of the scientists and, and mathematicians and, and computer scientists didn't have jobs. Uh, so they kind of went lone wolf and, and went their different directions. Well, a lot of them ended up meeting up and, and becoming these APT groups and forming these type of uh, technology groups. And, you know, the Russian government sees that and they employ them. Um, we do the same thing. You know, we have the NSA who has been, you know, responsible for coups all over the world and, and, you know, bending politics in different countries. So, I mean, it's no different than how we formulate our attacks on different governments in different countries. Um, it's just, they have a lot more advanced knowledge and instead of putting those guys in jail for hacking, they're putting them to work. And that's one big flaw that we have here is we don't do that. So my, my sense for this is an outsider's perspective is I, I, every time I kind of take a look at any research done on an APT group, a nation state, a criminal organization, there's like these la layers of connection and abstraction. And what I mean by that is you look at some of these APT groups, or these nation states, well, it turns out, you know, they're contracting or have a, a, a loose relationship with XYZ criminal organization and XYZ hacktivists and there's like this matrix of interconnectivity that makes holding anyone accountable nearly impossible 
is, is my read on that right? Are you seeing the same kind of like loose matrix or are there like factions where they're clearly separate? How is it all organized? So, so they are kind of interconnected, but the telltale sign is if you go to the FBI.gov and look at the most wanted list, they're all Russian military officers from the GRU, which I mean, within itself tells a story. You know, they are the ones leading these groups. They're the ones directing these groups. And yeah, they do use criminal organizations. I mean, we do the same. You know, you look at uh, the movie Catch Me If You Can and, you know, they employed him. He's still working for the FBI after 44 years. I did a talk with him in London and uh, yeah, he's he's still employed, um, you know, after doing his time. But in Russia, it's a lot different. You know, they won't put you in jail. They'll put you to work. So it's... Um you know, as a company, you hear all this, you hear there's uh, flaws in technology, there's uh, huge headlines, there's these advanced, these uh, military groups, your own government. And it's hard to know where to begin. Like, it, you know, it, is the technology so fundamentally broken that there's no fixing this? So we have to re-architect the whole world around blockchain and decentralization? Who knows? There's uh, buzzwords like machine learning and artificial intelligence. So if you're advising a CISO or an organization and they're like, man, where do I start? Like, where do I start to start securing the stuff and at least putting up some walls to protect yourself? The, the basics. I mean, when, you, when I look at companies now, um, take, for instance, some of the companies I looked at in oil and gas, and they were wanting, you know, all the AI, the ML, everything they could get that was shiny and new. But yet they had 500 eternal blue vulnerabilities on their internal network. It's like, why go to machine learning these advanced algorithms when you can't lock down your own exchange server? Um, you know, I, I think that people get ahead of themselves and they want to stay at the forefront, you know, of the technology and the leading edge. But the problem is that they're not doing the basics. And a lot of it has to do with, with relationships within an organization. Um, I preach a lot about, you know, it's not technology, it's people. You know, we can we can make technology do whatever we want it to do, but it's the people aspect. Um, you know, when I first got in security, you know, when you walked down the hall and you were known as security, it was almost like the Darth Vader song playing in the background. No, everybody ran. Nobody wanted to deal with security because security back then meant that, you know, operations or the day to day, you know, business was going to slow down because we had to, you know, make rules or have them do this or do that. Uh, so I tried to bend things a little bit and build relationships within a company. And instead of going to, let's say, accounting and saying, oh, you know, you failed the phishing test. Um, I would go in every morning and, and sit and talk to everybody and see, you know, what their what their pain points were and where I could help them. Um, and a lot of times, too, you know, CEOs and executives treat people like employees instead of people. And that's where insider threat comes into play. You know, if, if you build relationships and listen to your employees and, listen, and look at them as a person, first of all, you, half your half your problems gone away because you have an open line of communication. Yep, absolutely. I was doing some research on um, kind of, I guess, just the organization structure and the mind of a hacker, if you will. And uh, I stumbled into uh, some some uh, an affiliate program that uh, a ransomware group had put together that was like a revenue share model. And it said, hey, look, you can use our ransomware, but you got to like pay us, you know, X percent. And uh, which I think highlighted the fact that a lot of these groups aren't unlike corporations. Like if you think about the mind of a hacker, there's a playbook, there's probably a training program. They're probably 
executing a common attack chain to to reach a certain uh, place that they want to get inside of a network. And, and you were one of those guys. Like you were one of the ones executing against a playbook and part as part of a hacktivist group. Was there anything that you ran into that like if you ran into it, you're like, okay, this one's going to be tough to get into. Like, is there a silver bullet? Is there technology that like it really works? Anything that you tout? Well, so some of the targets that, that I went after from an individual standpoint, um, foreign governments, uh, you know, and I see it all over the place. You know, if you just do a scan of the Internet, you know, using something like mass scan, just pick a country, any country yep. um, and do a, a scan of their government IPs. There's going to be at least two or three systems that stand out. Uh, with wide open vulnerabilities like the uh, Atomic Energy Commission in Iran, um, their webmail was on squirrel mail facing the internet. You know, I mean, it's things like that. It's not hard. And a lot of people think that, you know, we're in these dark rooms behind these keyboards and, and writing code 24 seven. And, you know, we have these ginormous brains that, you know, we're geniuses, but it doesn't take a genius to break into a, a computer because more than likely, any network, give me any network on the planet, there's going to be that low-hanging fruit that someone has forgotten about. And we usually use that as an entryway. And if not, we use people. People are, are really easy to manipulate. They're easy to get to know their, their their behaviors and predict their future behaviors. And that's where you can interject yourself into their operations. What about, um, I, I hear, you know, some folks I respect in the security community, they talk about... Um, you know, different technologies that are emerging that, that might be interesting. I've also heard um, like deception, like being intentionally deceptive uh, to the extruders being a, a pretty common topic here recently. Is there anything new, like any kind of new technology, any new principles that are interesting to you? You're like, hey, this is a great way of thinking. We should be considering this. Sure. So 2017, I believe, um, I went and was a subject at Sandia National Labs. And it was put on by, it was a research project put on by the Department of Energy, Department of Defense, and Sandia. And so what they did was they recruited about 12 of us at that time um, to go in. They didn't tell us what we were doing. Um, we were all handpicked. The, it was interesting because the actual contract that I got was redacted. Most of it was redacted, so I couldn't even tell what I was doing, but it was good money. And I was like, you know, hey, you know, free trip, good money, I'm down. Um, so I flew out there, get to Sandia, and you check in, and we were told that, you know, the, the systems in front of you, those are your systems. We had dividers between us to where we couldn't talk to each other. We couldn't communicate at all. Um, they put a bracelet on me that would uh, look at, uh, pulse and uh, perspiration. Um, the camera on the laptop looked at eye movement, track eye movement, and they also did keystroke logging. And what they did was they said, okay, here, here's a network and it's a SCADA network. Um, your objective is to get in and compromise as many machines as possible. And during like, we would do that for a certain amount of time and then we'd stop and we'd have to do crypto challenges and crypto puzzles and, and mind puzzles and then go right back at it. So like stress test, right? And so what it was, was they were trying to see the bio response from an intruder on a network so that they can kind of fingerprint that um, as well as, you know, see how the mind was working. You know, if, if breaking into a system caused any lag of, I guess, cognitive ability, 
um, being able to do, you know, complex math, math equations, um, and just kind of get to know the attacker. And that was part of um, Project Tularosa. Uh, you can read about it on the internet. Um, they published it years back. Uh, but Project Tularosa was basically um, their study to try to hone in and create more deceptive techniques for the Department of Defense and Department of Energy um, to keep attackers from you know getting to where they want to go. Did, did they uh, have you noticed anything particularly effective, like honeypots or uh, you know making people zig when they should have zagged when they get into the network? Is any of that work? Uh, you think, or is it just kind of hogwash? Yeah, well, honeypots used to work. Uh, they used to be really effective. Um, you'd always catch somebody in there. But now, w- with honeypots, especially if you haven't faced the internet, most of what you get is automated scanning. Yeah. Uh, really not a lot of hardcore details in that. Um, a lot of the underground intelligence uh, st- stuff that like CrowdStrike does is very effective. Um, they have boots on the ground. You know, they have people in groups. You know, that that funnel intelligence out. Uh, the zero day programs help a lot, um, you know, and the bug bounties. But, you know, the, the thing is, I, I tell companies, if you're going to have advanced defense systems, let's say ML or AI, quote unquote AI, you also have to have that, that threat intelligence piece, right? You have to know your attacker. You have to know how they operate and how they think. And the only way to really do that is to get close to those groups, embrace who they are, figure out their methodology and find a way to to funnel that information out. And CrowdStrike does a really good job of, of really getting in there and, and getting intelligence from those groups. Yeah, I find those those groups really, uh, you, you hear like Recorded Future, CrowdStrike, there, there's others, government agencies and stuff that do that kind of intelligence. And uh, it's interesting because uh, some of the ones I've been exposed to will have researchers that know multiple languages because if you're an English speaker, you don't, you can't get into the Japanese or the Chinese uh, forms, if you will. So, uh, but then the downside of that stuff is it's very effective, but it kind of feels like that's a big company luxury, you know, unless you can afford to purchase the intelligence and then implement the intelligence, it's probably not going to be very effective for you. Plus, like you said earlier, you are, don't even, most companies don't even have the basics down. Like you need to patch your systems before you start thinking about, you know, significant intelligence. But I, I do think that that's very, it's very, it's very cool technology to think that there's guys researching those underground groups. Very neat. I know you do a bunch of research too, and I want to talk about uh, some of the projects that you're working on and where people can get in touch with you. I, um, let's talk about Haunted Hacker. Like I, I saw a magazine out there. You do a podcast that's really cool, uh, and there's a whole community growing around it. It's a pretty new community, it seems like to me. So, uh, what are you up to there? So, we've been going strong since October 31st of last year. Uh, my roommate and I, Michael Blanc, sat down, and I had just made it back to the states. Um, was recovering from COVID, and my buddy said, "You know, hey, why don't we do a podcast with your knowledge and what you've been through? You know, let's do something different." something, you know, people can appreciate. So we came up with the idea of the podcast and I did a couple episodes and it went from a handful of people to, you know, 40, 50 people wanting to be on the podcast. And we decided to open it up and and make it a community as well and bring in guests. So we quickly grew. Um, We went to discord. We have a Twitter account. Now Uh, we now have a magazine, um, Ryan Williams out of Australia, 
uh, Edison Magazine. We have writers from all over the place. Uh, we just put out a AI, uh, artificial intelligence um, issue of the magazine, which was pretty cool. We had a PhD in there that was writing about you know future futuristic uh, concepts and stuff. Um, so, and the podcast has really grown as well. Uh, we've had a lot of really good guests on there. We had Chris Roberts. Uh, we had Nubix. Like, it's just, it's going really well. Um, and also, another thing I do on the side and bring people into the group is I work with the London police and the, p- the police in the UK uh, to help turn kids around, right? So, I do their cyber program, the interventions, and also help with uh, former convicted um, offenders and kind of mentor them and get them going in the right direction. Uh, but some of my personal research, like I'm still doing a lot of malware creation. Um, recently I was doing a lot of evasion techniques for APK and Android malware, uh, and showing, you know, how you can track somebody, you know, on the road with their phone basically, and turn into a listening device and a microphone and a webcam and all this stuff. Uh, but I'm always trying to bend technology. You know, Alexa's, I'm trying to write an exploit module for Alexa uh, because I have an in-map module now, in-map skill set. And I'm trying to expand on that and turn into uh, more of an auto-sploit type uh, module. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're going strong. And, you know, we, uh, we're we looking forward to our anniversary on October 31st. Um, we're going to have F- a fitting. party. Fitting. Yeah. We have a 24-hour um, podcast with uh, DJs. Uh, we had dual core on not too long ago and they want to do the, the anniversary so it's, it's gonna be really interesting awesome if people want to get involved in that community where can they find you uh the hauntedhacker.com all the links all the podcasts everything is right there um you can find our discord link on there as well awesome well mike it's been a pleasure man thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and giving us some insight into this whole security phenomena that we're dealing with And if you're out there listening and you like this kind of content, uh, you can check out Tuesday Morning Grind on any of your favorite podcast apps. Uh, Another great place you can go is you can go to YouTube, uh, search for Risk360, and you can see the Tuesday Morning Grind podcast and all the other great content that we have out there. So if you want to do research on security frameworks or, you know, exploits and things like that that are coming out, you can check us out on YouTube. Mike, pleasure. Pleasure.